Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Data-Driven Real Estate Podcast, the podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business success using data. I'm your host, Aaron Norris, here with co-host Sean O'Toole. And our special guest today is Dr. Karen Lacey. Um, we first stumbled upon... Now, Karen, do you like to be called Dr. Lacey or Karen? Any preference? Um, you can... Dr. Lacey's fine. I like that. Fine. Either way. You've worked really hard for the title. I always have to ask. (laughs) Um, We stumbled upon some of your work on a Cal Matters podcast, the Gimme Shelter, and we're fascinated with your conversation and your knowledge and all your research on the suburbs. So we're really excited to talk to you today. Um, I guess the first question, your background in studying, you've got a BA in urban studies and black studies, a a master's in African-American studies and sociology, and then a PhD in sociology. I would just... How did you stumble into this career and why this passion? Well, I've always been interested in cities and always um, wondered how we could make cities better. And initially I thought that I was going to be an urban planner and I went to a college that required us to spend winter term doing an internship so i worked for um, an urban planning office in a small city and i did not enjoy it (laughs) um i before i had um taken on the internship i thought that cities were um not so attractive because people were unimaginative and I thought if they had people who really had good ideas then cities would look better and function better and one thing that I learned in the internship is that um, there's a lot of red tape there's a lot of bureaucracy and even when you come up with a really good idea it's very hard to push that idea through a city council to convince a city manager um, so there's a hierarchy that this idea has to travel through and most ideas don't make it. Um, and so in that sense, the internship was really useful because it helped me to realize what I did not want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's very funny. I almost went back to school for urban planning as well from an arts degree. And really? the, yeah, <laughs> and lived in New York city and I stumbled upon all this research. I was I loved the subway system and was just really curious how the five bureaus came to be. And New York being so diverse, like how do these specific um, populations end up in very specific portions of the town? I just I just loved it. And then when I moved back to California and started getting involved in the city and the county, I had the same exact experience. And I shut that down <laughs> real quick. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. God bless urban planners. I mean, Mary. They don't get enough credit for the ideas that they come up with and all the work that they put into trying to bring them into fruition. So then you started just to focus on the sociology instead. Well, I have always felt like a sociologist. I have always been sort of attentive to patterns and thinking about why we see the kinds of outcomes that we do. you know, when I was a little kid, I didn't know there was a word for it for people who did that. <laughs> I didn't learn that until I got to high school. Um, but it felt like a natural fit. Um, and it has been in a lot of ways. Now, a lot of your, um, you know, you've done research on foreclosures in the suburbs and, and, and all these things. I was looking through some of your, your papers. How much of your uh, of the research you do is qualitative versus quantitative? I mean, if not, professor, almost all of it is qualitative. I do work at the University of Mich- Michigan, which is a quantitative powerhouse, as most people know. Um, and we have exceptional graduate students. So I am involved in a few projects that. Um, quantitative graduate students are working on with me. They run the data and then we, I have the analysis and put it together. So it's a, it's a good marriage. Yeah, for sure. How, how accessible or how often is getting good data, you know, a problem in, in doing, you know, your research, um, 
you know, obviously on the qualitative side, you're going out and doing interviews and other things, but on the quantitative side, is is access to data a problem or is it generally pretty good? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because a lack of access to data was the motivation for Blue Chip Black, the book I wrote about the DC suburbs. I started out training as a demographer, which is a person who uses data sets to analyze research questions. And I was interested in how middle-class black people decide where to live. Much of the literature on residential segregation suggests there is a lot of discrimination in the, in the housing market. Um, there's racial steering, there's redlining. And the literature suggested that even if you are middle class or upper middle class, you're still going to have a hard time getting into your neighborhood of choice. And that was, that was what I was really interested in exploring. And I was having trouble finding the data set that included the variables that would allow me to do that. And in consultation with my dissertation advisors, we decided that I should just go down there and start to interview people about how they made their housing decisions and also to engage in ethnographic observation, which is to the extent that you can trying to become sort of a member of a committee or an organization to see how that institution works from their perspective. Um, so you go down and sort of try to live the way that they do, going to the same grocery stores that they do, you're driving through all the traffic that they do in the DC metro area. Um, you go into shopping malls, all the things that, that a person who lives in that community would do in everyday life, I tried to do as well. Wow. So that's, actually, a, that's a huge commitment. <laughs> it really is. It, it's exhausting. At the end of the day, you have to write field notes about what you saw and try to figure out what it all means. How long were you there and how many people did you have to interview? So I was there for two years, and my goal was to interview 30 couples, so 60 people all together, and I interviewed the spouses separately. But in the end, there were six people who I was unable to interview, either because the timing was never quite right for their schedule or because the spouse just did not want to participate. So I ended up with 54 interviews that I had to transcribe. Um, and then also all the field notes from my observations, which included going to community uh, meetings and town halls and community events. Um, the, um, so the, in suburban communities, they tend to have an annual block party. Um, so I went to that. Um, they do cleanups in their communities. I went to those. So again, whatever it is that they were doing, I tried to, to do as well. That's extensive for two years. You really committed. That's not unusual for an ethnographic project. Although I appreciate you guys, um, recognizing how much effort it takes to pull off that kind of study. There was yeah. a, I was reading the introduction. I haven't finished your book yet, but I did buy it and I'm posting a link uh, to it on our website. Um, so blue chip, black race, class and status in the new black middle class. And in the introduction, you, um, it was sort of sweet. You were talking about data collection and, and some of the data was missing or it was up against one of your professors. Can you talk a little bit about <laughs> the process? Because it seems like some of the things that you were researching butted up against the data that did exist. Um, can you share a little bit about that? Yes, that is true. And normally that's a good thing because what academics are interested in is, is building on our existing knowledge base and taking that knowledge in new directions. So generally, if you find something new, that's a good thing, right, for um, the publication of a book or an article. Uh, the problem is that what I found ran counter to what one of my dissertation committee advisors had found and I did not want to tell her that she was wrong 
So, you know, in, in the department, we have colloquium sessions and graduate students present their work. And I tried to present it without saying that she was wrong. And she, she finally said, just say that I was wrong here. <laughs> just say it. So she, I was worried for nothing. She really didn't care at all. She's not the kind of person who is sensitive about being challenged about her work. Um, I guess I, would, I, I appreciated that because it was the, the honesty of the data. The, the data was able to speak, I thought was pretty cool. Right. I've always had a problem with this idea that, you know, flip-floppers are bad, right? Like, and not to make it political, but like this idea that flip-floppers, like it, it should all be our goal to like learn new things and change our opinion based on better data like every day. <laughs> It should be, yes, and it also should be the case that academics are not so sensitive about someone finding a more nuanced interpretation of their work. That should right. be fine as well, but that isn't always <laughs> the case. So the issue with, with my uh, dissertation advisor's work is that she had written a wonderful book called Ethnic options, which is a study of third generation white people and how they think about their identity. And the idea was that, you know, over time, white ethnic immigrants who came to this country exchanged their culture of origin, whether they were Polish or German or Irish, for an American identity to become a part of the American mainstream. And the sense was that they would do that voluntarily because who wouldn't want to be a part of America? And what she found is that as discrimination against those groups declined over time, so you were no longer penalized if you were Irish in terms of where you could work or who you could marry or where you could live, um, that those immigrants took on a white American identity that was not distinguished by ethnicity, was the sort of prevailing view. And what she found from interviewing white ethnic third generation Americans is that they actually did care a lot about having an ethnic identity. They thought being just white was really boring. They called it, quote, plain vanilla. So they were attempting to latch on to some kind of ethnicity, and often they were wrong. So there was a Polish woman who said that she celebrated her identity by eating sauerkraut, which is not representative of Polish culture. So it didn't really matter for them whether the um, ritual that they embraced was an authentic representation of the identity that they claimed. The point was that they wanted to be something. But... That's she really argued, yeah. Yeah, I, but she. Go ahead. She argued that black people don't have any identity options, right? That because of the way race is defined in the U.S. and the social meaning that's attached to it, black people are just black, and that's it. And what I found in Blue Black is that that isn't at all the way black people, in particular middle class black people, think about their identity. They don't see themselves as defined solely by race in every context. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Yeah. I get that. You know, it's, it was interesting for me. I, my name is Sean Patrick O'Toole, right? It's ah, super Irish. Yeah. Um, I'm only three sixteenths Irish. Like I am a true mutt and I'm more Irish than anything else. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's a really interesting, you know, uh, thing like, you know, do I identify as Irish? I'm very little Irish, right? Mm -hmm. And um, But my name is very Irish. And so there's all these little um, things and nuances. And, and uh, yeah, it's yeah. And it's certainly other people. Talk. Yeah, other people when they hear your name are going to realize that you are Irish, even though it may not be a salient identity for you. Right. On a basis. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. how did you stumble upon this area in D.C.? Were you aware of this already? Um, the, 
there's um, two neighborhoods uh, in the book that you talked about. Um, I believe one was in Virginia and one in Maryland, correct? That's correct. And, and the one in, was it, I can't remember the name, um, the, the two different areas, but you were specifically studying upper middle class black families and where they chose to live. But the, how you found this, how did you even find this, these two neighborhoods so close together? Well, that's another instance where data is really important. I knew I wanted to find a sample of middle-class Black people because I wanted to understand how, if you have enough money to live wherever you want, what are your choices, as opposed to people whose choices are constrained by financial limitations. So then the question was, where do I work? Do I find these mysterious black people. <laughs> so I went to the census and started to look around at different census tracks to figure out what tracks would meet my criteria. And for comparative purposes, I needed one tract that was majority black and another tract that was predominantly white that all had the same characteristics. So the same median monthly mortgage payment, the same percentage of college graduates, um, the same median income, that sort of thing. And through that process, I was able to identify two communities, one in Prince George's County, which is the majority black suburb, and the other in Fairfax County, which is a predominantly white suburb. So you can see here too that even though I was planning to do an ethnography and to do interviews, I still had to rely on a data set, the census, in order to get started. So interesting. Now, where did you live in that two years? Did you live in DC and sort of travel out or did you spend time in each of those neighborhoods? So this is where being a poor graduate student makes life interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I lived on a lot of couches. <laughs> so um, fortunately, I had friends in D.C. who let me stay some of the time um, with them. And um, I do have, I have an aunt and an uncle who also live in the area. Okay. Um, so a lot of living out of a suitcase. Yeah, you know, one of the uh, uh, things we really focus on uh, making public records data more available. So county assessor, county recorder, and, and there's quite a bit of, of information there, um, you know, that would be useful for you. Did you use uh, that type of public records at all or primarily just uh, census data? To get started, I mainly use the census data because I wanted to be sure that I had the right communities for my research questions before I started the equally hard process of convincing people to participate in the study. So I definitely wanted to be sure I had the right communities. I got started in PG County because of a contact that I had already, but it was a lot harder to get started in Fairfax County. Initially, I tried snowball sampling, which is when you start out by asking people you've already interviewed if they have friends or contacts in the neighborhood that you hope to interview in. And I did get a few um, leads for residents in Fairfax County from that, but when I called them, they didn't want to do it. So they're their friends who I had already interviewed and said, here's a person you should contact, they'll do it. And when I contacted them, they were like, oh no, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> so, um, so I was really sad and thought, you know, I'm not going to graduate, I'm going to be ABD for the rest of my life because <laughs> I only have half of a comparative study. Um, and it got to the point where I would tell anyone, I mean, I feel sorry for every stranger on the streets of DC because whoever I met, I would tell them this sob story about how I had no contacts in Fairfax County. And um, one day I went to a bank in downtown DC to open a student account. And the manager there started asking me questions. What are you writing a dissertation about? And I told her, and I told her that I wanted to interview people in Fairfax County. Nobody would talk to me. And just by luck, she happened to live in the tract that I wanted to study. 
And she said, you, not only could you interview me, I'll also introduce you to some of my neighbors. And from there, it just took off. So you never really know where you're going to find the right contact for your research. And thus the snowball started with the one, the one banker and then snowballed into uh, uh, completing your, your thing. You know what? I, I, I'm thankful for hungry, uh, you know, grad students and, uh, <laughs> and the rest, right? Because otherwise these things wouldn't happen, right? Like most of us wouldn't go, go through that, right? Um, without having that kind of hungry desire. Right. Well, most, most people who have full-time jobs, even if they have the desire, they lack the time. It's very time-consuming to do that, to observe all day and then to come home and write up field notes. Most people who work full-time, it's, it's a real impossibility for them to do something like that. I'd love to jump into, you know, you talk about the the history of um, suburbs, you know, listened to on CalMatters. And, you know, I thought some of that was really fascinating and, and, you know, you know, even I'm familiar with Levittown and, and some of these things, but, but I thought you brought uh, a lot of uh, interesting to that. And I'd love to jump into that with maybe your, you know, I don't know if you want to start with like what you think the top takeaways, you know, should be for, for folks to understand about suburbs and how they originated. Okay, Sure. Yeah, I think the most important thing for people to understand is the FHA's role in segregating America, that the Federal Housing Administration is really the architect of residential segregation in America's suburbs. And I say that because most people think that if they want to buy a house, you identify a neighborhood or maybe two, you find a realtor, you search for a house, and then you just move in. And that's not at all the way the housing search has worked historically for Black people who wanted to buy a house. So it's important to understand that for decades, the FHA influenced where people live through the policies that the organization promoted. And I think their most um, consequential policy was the adoption of the HOLC, the Homeowners Loan Corporation's residential security maps. And those maps represented the HOLC's assignment of a rating to every block in every city in the country. And there were four categories, green and blue neighborhoods, which the HOLC felt would always appraise um, well. Because for the HOLC, the motivation was to create a standardized appraisal system that appraisers, so that appraisers of different parts of the country would be using the same criteria to evaluate properties. So, you know, a 4,000, this was 1933. So a $4,000 property in Wisconsin would reflect the same characteristics as a $4,000 property in Ohio. Um, So the green and blue neighborhoods were the best ones. The yellow and red neighborhoods were the worst neighborhoods and all black neighborhoods were Um, assign the red designation, which is where the term redlining comes from. So even black neighborhoods that had brand new housing stock, because the people living in those homes were brown, were still assigned the red um, designation. And then the FHA came along and decided those residential maps are a great way to fulfill their plan to segregate every community in America by race. So the HOLC was really interested in just appraisals. They weren't doing something malicious with their residential security maps, but the FHA did. So the FHA actually took the racist practices that were employed 
by lenders and realtors at the time and converted that into federal policy. Did anybody give any, a reason why that was done at the FHA level? Well, the FHA says that they were principally concerned with property values. The FHA doesn't actually loan money directly. They insure the loans that lenders grant to home seekers. So they were very concerned with property values, but their uh, premise was racist. So in their underwriting manual, they said if a neighborhood is to retain stability, it is necessary that properties should continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. So they were instructing lenders that it's not necessary for you to grant loans to black people to live in green or blue neighborhoods. And the federal government is fine with that. And as a result, for the next 34 years at least, because 1968 is when the Fair Housing Act was passed, but we certainly know that there's still redlining going on today. But for at least the next 34 years, from 1934 to 1968, Black home seekers were shut out of predominantly white neighborhoods. And the suburbs were typically classified as green or blue. So what we have is communities that were designated exclusively for white home seekers that were funded through taxes paid by everyone. So I often hear, even in some of the articles that I see, I've seen recently in response to Trump's comments about the suburbs, I see white suburbanites saying, I earned this, I deserve to be here, in part because that's the way we've conceived of home ownership in this country, right? But the people who work hard and who are successful are the people who deserve homes, that people who are poor don't deserve a nice home, right? But there's little awareness that that community exists for an option for you if you're white because of all the work that the FHA did for 30 years to exclude black people and increasingly Latino people. So it's useful to think about the way our communities would look if the FHA had made a different choice, right? If they had decided to promote racial integration instead of racial segregation. And had they done that, we would see black people accumulating wealth at the same rate that white people have done for the last 80 years since the FHA was, uh, came was, into existence. I was talking to my father about this very thing. His family was in Brooklyn at the time after World War II. My father got a VA loan in New York and uh, we were talking about what that meant to our family over the, mm -hmm. you know, for the last 60 years, what that yeah. equity buildup has meant as far as education of family members of wealth within the family. And, it is very important to understand that history. And I was interested going down the rabbit hole. I don't think I've ever prepared more for an interview in my life. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> I started reading a lot about Levittown and then affordable housing. I, I really didn't appreciate where affordable housing started and it wasn't, it didn't start necessarily as a low income play. It was a mm -hmm. really, really a function of world war two. Can you talk about yeah. that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, and, and there too, the FHA is relevant because Levittown, which is was the largest at the time, 1947, the Long Island Levittown was the largest suburban development ever constructed by a developer. And that development would not have been possible without the backing of the FHA. The FHA insured um, the loans of Levittown home seekers so the Levitts could take certain risk without risking financial loss. And they built homes that cost about $7,000, which is in today's dollars would be about $84,000. So it was an affordable home. And for most uh, New Yorkers, moving to Levittown was cheaper than paying rent. One of the things, you know, one of the other, you know, big pieces of the history of Levittown, right, was a uh, 
the use of a restrictive covenant mm-hmm. um, that basically said that the house could not be used or occupied by any person other than members of the Caucasian race. Right. And I always thought that was, you know, uh, you know, just a, you know, the developer, the Levitts, you know, um, you know, basically bringing their own ideals or norms or what they thought would sell best or protect their community the best or, or the rest. But I'm wondering now, based on this thing with the FHA, if maybe some of that wasn't to to ensure that, you know, they could get the, the folks coming to Levittown could get loans. And but then maybe did, did they, you know, did one lead the other? Was it, were the Levitts racists that didn't want blacks in their community or, or were they reacting to these FHA rules? Any ideas there? So the Levitts took their lead from the FHA. And as I said, the first Levittown was constructed in 1947 Restrictive covenants were outlawed in 1948 by the Supreme Court, who said that restrictive covenants were unenforceable as law and contrary to public policy. But the FHA dismissed that ruling and continued to accept applications from um, homeowners who were seeking to buy a house in homes got in communities governed by restrictive covenants until 1950. So for two years after the practice was uh, rendered illegal, the FHA continued to say, um, we're fine with you engaging in this discriminatory practice. The Levitt brothers actually were asked about why they refused to sell homes to black people, especially because they had been innovators in so many other ways in terms of um, the construction of large-scale suburban developments at a very rapid pace, right? They were having prefabricated walls and flooring and roofs shipped into the community instead of building houses one at a time. They would snap together more than 30 houses a day, which for 1947 was phenomenal. For today, um, it's phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> but what they said when they were asked about selling homes to black people, uh, William Levitt said, we can solve a housing problem or we can try to solve a racial problem. But we cannot combine the two. There's a, there's a video on YouTube, Crisis in Levittown. It's, uh, it's, I think it's a documentary shot in 1957 about the it was a newsreel of the first black family, I guess, that moved into Levittown. And mm-hmm. when they're interviewing the white families, they keep leaning, in, leaning into this concept. It's going to lower the values of our property. And I guess talking about this in the way that we are when it comes to the appraisals, was that truly possibly a fact if for some reason that the, the, the zone would change? At that point in 1957, did those districts with the, the HOLC still exist as far as the colors? The designations did still exist, okay. but the what the data show is that the first black family to move into a majority white community actually raises the property values because that family pays a premium to move into that community. Um, opening up new demand, right? I mean, basic law of price is supply and demand. And the more people you have that want into a place, right, that should, unless that one black family chases away so many white families, but I just, it's hard well, for me to see that. Yeah. Well, the, so, they, so the first problem is that the black family is being overcharged for that home. And then that benefits existing white residents because their property values go up as a result. So, I mean, it would be a twisted policy, but you could advocate that every majority white community try to recruit one black family. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, I'm joking. I was probably a joke in poor taste, but it is the case that their property values go up as long as one black family moves in. The problem is that um, the that one black family moving in gets constructed as the beginning 
of neighborhood transition. I think this is what Trump was alluding to initially when he said the suburbs would be destroyed. But it's not because the family is is black. It's because blockbusters tended to follow that one black family into the community. And they would knock on the doors of white residents and say, do you know there's a black family that moved in down the street from you and your home is going to lose its value? You should sell it before it's worth nothing and you're penniless. And that strategy worked with a lot of white people who were frightened about losing their only asset or their most valuable asset. And they would sell. And once one person started to sell, another person would. And then you get a domino effect. And that's what made the black community transition over to black, the developer's um, intervention to cause that outcome. So what we hear in popular culture is that a black family moves in, the neighborhood goes down. But, but there's an intervening variable, which is a blockbuster who comes in and, and causes that kind of sell-off. Are you saying blockbuster? Blockbusters, yeah. yeah. I'm not familiar with that term. What is that? Block, blockbusting is the process that I just described, which is the deliberate um, racial turnover of a community for profit. I, I guess, I mean, who, who would that be? Is there a, a role besides just causing trouble? Is it a, a realtor looking for business? Is it an investor looking to get a home cheaply? Is, it, is there a specific role that person plays? Oh, so investors and uh, realtors who are interested in profit because um, as the neighborhood is, is transitioning, transitioning, you make money, you force white homeowners out and you sell the homes that they abandoned to black people at a very high price uh, so that you turn over a profit. But there's, and this is a fairly widespread practice. There's a book called The Death of a Jewish American Community. I think the authors are historians, but I'm not quite certain about that. But in any case, what they describe is a consortium of banks in the Boston area got together and decided that they were going to redline and they were only going to sell homes to black people if they, they were only going to provide mortgages for homes for black people if they agreed to move into this one section of Boston that they had cordoned off and designated as appropriate for black people called Mattapan. The problem is that that community already had people living in it. They were Jewish and they had synagogues and Jewish supermarkets and all kinds of um, cultural practices and institutions in that community. And the bankers pushed them out and put blacks in. And for years, that community was a majority black community. It's now becoming gentrified and transitioning as many predominantly black communities in large cities are, but that's a very clear and disturbing example of how the banks in a city might all form a coalition to um, enforce redlining practices. So it's the, you had federal policy coming into play, you had local policy. It's, it's so fascinating to see all the different pieces that how we end up where we're at today. Um, also spent quite a fair amount of time researching, you would probably appreciate this as an urban planner, a lot of the 50s concept of affordable housing. Um, the stuff in Chicago, I live close by the one in the Harlem area, just very stark 1950s, um, Le, Cor Le Corbusier, Bauhaus movement. Man, it's, mm -hmm. the buildings almost look scary. <laughs> what did we learn about the housing that they were building uh, at that period of time? Mm -hmm. Well, initially, I mean, we, our in, image of public housing now is runs counter to what public housing was at its inception. So initially, to get into public housing, you had to sort of pass a moral test, right? You had to be upstanding. You had to have a job. You had to demonstrate 
that you had a moral compass in order um, to get in. And it was, you had to apply, there was a long waiting list and it was, it was hard to get an apartment in, um, in public housing. But then the FHA helped to initiate white flight in central cities by subsidizing the suburbs. And in the process, they really caused a lot of harm in central cities. Um, and that's when you start to see um, public housing transition to um, a home for lower middle class, working class people who are trying to be upwardly mobile to um, places for the working poor. It's really, I mean, it's, it's stunning to me how, you know, we touched a minute ago on like realtors and investors played a role in blockbusting. Um, you know, I don't think most folks realize, right? The, Real, the National Association of Realtors, I think has been around since 1908 and they have this, you know, code of ethics. Mm -hmm. Um, but past versions of their code of ethics include a realtor should never be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood members of any race or nationality whose presence will clearly be detrimental to property values. Mm -hmm. So it was like the code of ethics was to keep, you know, folks out of neighborhoods to not hurt. So, I mean, it was really systemic and that stayed in the Realtor Code of Ethics until 1950. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's still the case among some realtors that, um, well, let me say this, realtors build their clientele based on their reputations, right? They find a house for someone, the person is happy, and then that person recommends them to a friend, right? Well, if you as a realtor develop a reputation as the person who brought black people into a predominantly white neighborhood, it's possible that you won't have very many clients going forward. Um, I'm not justifying what realtors have done. I'm saying that from their perspective, they're trying to grow their business and they're trying to make money and everyone from the FHA to developers to lenders are saying, discrimination is fine. So why right. would you do the right thing? To be, to be fair, the, the, you know, the, their code of ethics does not say that anymore. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it clearly says they should not do that. But, um, but I believe you that it's still happening. In fact, um, you uh, uh, went undercover uh, to be, uh, to just go see this in person. And what was that experience like? It was it was jarring. I mean, in part because I'm a very bad actress, so, <laughs> so I was very nervous. Um, but also because I, you know, at that point I had been in graduate school for three years. I had read a lot of the literature on housing discrimination and. I had um, residents in PG County and Fairfax County, most of whom were saying that they didn't encounter any discrimination when they were looking for their house, right? That they wanted a house with the fireplace or they wanted a house where all their kids would have their own bedroom and they had that. And so because they had found what they wanted, they were content and they, they have no idea how many fewer houses they were shown compared to their white counterparts, right? Or they have no idea whether they were steered into communities that had a higher composition of people who look like them than their white counterparts, right? So there's no way for them to draw those comparisons. HUD's audit studies help us to do that because they sent out people who were assigned fictional identities and so you'd have a black auditor and a white auditor and they were assigned the same kinds of jobs and the same income and the same educational attainment. So the only difference between them was race and they would go out into session to apply for a home or an apartment that was listed. 
And it's through those studies that we found that there's still quite a bit of discrimination with black people told homes are not available even when they are, um, or being shown fewer homes or only being directed to homes in communities where there are other black people or communities where there's a concentration of poor people. Um, and we wouldn't have known those things without the audit studies. So with all that in mind, I walk into this realtor's office to pretend to buy a house. And at th that point, I'd never bought a house. So I was also nervous about that. Won't, won't I immediately be exposed as a very naive home seeker? <laughs> um, so I gave my spiel that, you know, I was my fiance and I are going to move to the area. He's has finished up medical school. He's starting the residency. We we want to live in this community, which is the one that I was studying. And the realtor was actually really nice. You know, he, he told a lot of jokes. He told me, you want to look for a house where the people are either getting a divorce or somebody died because those are really good deals, which is true. So that was good advice. But then he was also engaging in racial steering because even as I insisted that I wanted to live in the neighborhood that we were sitting in, he kept directing me to he had a large map in his office and he drew his finger from where we were up to another community, which I knew had a lot more black people and the housing stock was much older. And he said, you want to live here because here is where you would know who your neighbors are which is an interesting <laughs> That's an interesting thing way to, to put say. It. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, well, we want to live here. And he said, you can't afford to live here. But the problem is I had never given him a price range. And I had yeah. not said whether we would get money from our parents for the down payment. I had never mentioned price. But he looked at me and, and determined that the neighborhood was out of reach for us. So wow. in the process, I actually was like, this guy's nice. He's trying to help me, even though I had read all that stuff about housing discrimination. So I can see how the average person who hasn't read any of the stuff that we have, any of the literature that we have, would come out of that interaction not thinking that they had been discriminated against. Because the guy was nice. So racism has just got a lot more subtle. It has. <laughs> okay. It, I mean, it's an interesting, um, I'm a big uh, science fiction reader. I don't know, uh, Professor Lacey, if, you, if you've uh, read uh, Neil Stevenson at all and maybe Snow Crash and Burb Claves. I have not. I should. I'm going to write it down. Yeah. So it's a, uh, you know, it's a dystopian, uh, or at least I'll, I'll take it as dystopian look into the future. And um so basically, it has the suburbs becoming uh, franchised, na franchised nations. So they have their own constitutions, their city-states. Um, and, you know, I think the underlying theme is, is that, um, and I don't necessarily mean this on race, you know, I think class is, is probably another conversation we could be having here about mm -hmm. differences, um, and, uh, but race, certainly class. Um, etc. Um, and he basically, you know, the, the theory is the book is in the future. It basically, we come to the decision, we can't all get along. And so instead, we have the suburbs become their own little nations of like-minded uh, people. And I always thought that was uh, just a fascinating, you know, uh, take. I mean, uh, our goal here has been to try to, you know, to try to have integration and you know i certainly think that's a good goal but i guess you know i'd like to ask you what you think the future of you know suburbs and housing and integration are and and maybe how we get there yeah well there is a non-fiction book about the process that you've just described called whytopia which is written by a journalist he's a black journalist who spent, I think it was two weeks in each of these communities that he calls Whitopias, which are um, suburbs in distant communities. They're really in exurbs um, where white people who lived in California and other places where there's growing diversity are attempting to escape people of color, both 
black people and Latinos and also attempting to distance themselves from poor people. So they are, have literally moved out to the boondocks and started these exclusive gated communities that contain only people like them. Um, and that's a real life example. That's not, that's not fiction. Um, right. I recommend that book to, it's a really good um, treatment of that, of those communities. So I'd recommend that book, but I think we're just going to see uh, further divisions by social class where people who are wealthier and have the money to cordon themselves off from everyone else continue um, to do that. What do you think the long-term impacts of that are? I mean, what, what's the, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that is happening, continues to happening. Um, you know, I probably live in one of those communities. So, um, you know, it wasn't out of some desire to escape anything, just, uh, um, you know, appealed to me. I'm not even sure why. So mm -hmm. what, 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 what do you think the impact uh, of that is versus, you know, say my choosing to live in the the city with greater integration? Mm -hmm. It's going to affect everything. And I think we're going to see inequality skyrocket because if, for example, the best schools, you know, 30 years from now are in Whitopias, what about everyone else. <laughs> what kind of education are the kids who can't afford to live in those communities going to get, right? How are they going to be prepared for a changing job market? They probably are not. Um, there's a lot of discussion now because of the pandemic about what's going to happen if the schools don't open. And I've seen reports where middle and upper middle class parents are creating these learning pods where they're pooling their resources and then hiring experts to teach their kids. So at the end of the academic year in 2021, their kids are probably not going to be behind. But what about all the kids whose parents can't afford to hire a teacher to create a learning pod? Those kids are going to be behind next year and they're going to be behind by a lot. Also, when they create that learning pod, right, they're going to have a lot more choice in what is taught and what is not taught. Yeah. And so even those kids that get that better education, it's going to be a very selective education. It is probably very value laden. Yes. And I actually think, you know, it's, it's interesting you brought up COVID and, you know, because it's changing where people work, right? We, we've really seen this you know, if you look at most of the population in the U.S., right, um, you know, rural areas have been dying and urban areas are just exploding, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, not only work from home, but one of the things I'm also fascinated in about right now is new uh, low Earth orbit uh, satellite internet. And what that's going to do is bring high-speed internet to rural communities. And I think that's going to be pretty awesome for rural communities, but we might see an acceleration of these, you know, burb claves or gulch gulches or <laughs> white topias or, mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever, where people go, you know, no longer have to be in the city, no longer have to work together, no longer have to, and they can go off and find their, their own space that's idyllic in their own mind. And I think that has, a lot of interesting implications for, you know, the future of integration, race relations, et cetera. Any thoughts it, on that? It does. I, I heard a report that Google is going to allow their employees to work from home through next July. Um, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of implications from that. One is that, you know, even people who live in homogenous communities, often work in environments with that are more diverse, right? So at least in the workplace, they're exposed to people from different cultures and who may think differently than they do. But now in the, under the pandemic, when you don't even have that, um, it, it concerns me <laughs> how, um, what will happen to the racial progress that we've made so far 
when people don't have to manage those kinds of cross-racial interactions. It's much easier to vilify the other when you don't actually have to talk to, meet, and, uh, you know, spend time with the other and realize that they're really not very different at all. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, we'll see. It's definitely a concern. <laughs> are there, yeah. Um, go ahead, Aaron. Are there any cities um, that have done some work and improvement on the topics that we've been talking about that you've been excited about? Um, the right approach at the right time? Mm. Well, that says a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Well, there are there are some cities. So Shaker Heights is one such community. It's a suburb um, in a suburb of Cleveland that was featured in um, Kamal Bell's CNN special on Sunday, and and I've actually known about that community for some time. But they've been very proactive about managing. Um, residential integration in their community in Ann Arbor, which is where the University of Michigan is, at one time you could not post a for sale sign there because they didn't want to create the kinds of sell-offs that we were talking about a few minutes ago when we were discussing blockbusting. So there are some communities that have made attempts to both recruit white people who are interested in living in a more diverse community and then to make it possible for them to stay there and still maintain the property values there. Um, But they're few and far between. You know, um, you know, certainly don't want to head down, uh, you know, a path where we all have to live in the same thing and there aren't incentives you know, to work hard and get ahead and the rest. You know, we started off this conversation on urban, you know, planning and, you know, you know, praise for urban planners and how hard their their job is. But I also wonder, you know, to what degree, you know, you know, even back in the foreclosure crisis, I really felt like some of the problems in the foreclosure crisis came back to urban planning, right? The, the McMansions out in the cornfields that we saw here in California that, you know, just really made no sense even from like a heating and air conditioning, but uh, side of things and like the lack of thought into, you know, okay, you're going to have some larger homes. You're going to need to have some apartments. You need to have some smaller homes with, you know, uh, smaller pieces of property. So you can hit different, you know, price points and income levels Mm-hmm. And rather than having one on this side of the tracks and one on that side of the tracks, which seems to always be the case, you know, we're fairly close. I'm fairly close to Reno, right? And up on the, the mountains towards Tahoe is where all the higher end homes are. And then down kind of on the other side of the valley and, and to the north is where the lower income stuff is. And that really feels to me like a failure of, of urban planning. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely an aspect of um, of the crisis. But there's, there too, there is, the federal government is complicit there too because they allowed lenders to engage in predatory lending, um, granting mortgages without any documents um, to support the income that the homeowner reported. Um, and those predatory loans were concentrated in minority communities. So there too, you see that um, people of color were selected for differential treatment in the lending market as well. So we, we worked with the uh, San Jose Mercury on a, on a pretty large study of that mm-hmm. in, um, in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley. And um, uh, they, it was a really interesting thing where you know, they looked through at the Hispanic community and mm-hmm. um, how much harder the Hispanic community was hit generally mm-hmm. uh, than the other communities in basically the same geographic uh, area. So I, I was I was shocked. I didn't really think that there would be a, a difference there, and and I didn't really understand the mechanisms for why there would be a difference. But mm-hmm. you know, 
using our data, <laughs> there clearly was. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you guys read a paper that I wrote about the foreclosure crisis in the journal American Behavioral Scientists. But there, too, I also discovered that in California, the hardest hit people were Latino and Asian homeowners, in part because they had bought homes in boom markets and very expensive markets. And when um, when the housing market crashed, their property values just plummeted. Um, so I think you know the, the public narrative is that um, these black people seeking homes that they couldn't afford caused the crisis. And it's actually much more complicated and nuanced than that. You're right. Well, yeah, I mean, let's the, the 2008 crisis didn't happen on Main Street. It happened on Wall Street. Right? Mm-hmm, so, exactly. I, mean, I don't think that personally there's any debate about that. And I think it was backed by um, politicians. Um, uh, Dick Kovacevic, you know, the Wells Fargo guy went in and, and pushed for the Commodities Futures Modernization Act, the repeal of Glass-Steagall, and those things that basically let lenders make loans without recourse and mm-hmm. Fed, the Fed pushed that because it kind of saved the economy after the dot-com dot crash, right? And, and, you know, we'll do anything to save the economy, um, you know, as, as, a, as a country. And we're seeing maybe a little bit of that right now. But that was clearly what caused the uh, housing crash. And, and a lot of people got sucked up into this sale that, you know, real estate only went up and you know, the plenty of, of blame to go around on that one. But I don't, mm-hmm. I, I personally don't think any of it belongs to folks that bought into that dream of home ownership. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're at that hour mark. Um, that Dr. went by really quickly. I know. <laughs> and, I, and we didn't even get to all the questions that's typical, but uh, is there any work? Uh, what's next for you? Um, are, are you going to move somewhere else for two years and work on? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, unlikely, unlikely. Um, I so I so my dream project would be this can't happen because um, the IRB at my university, really at any university, would never approve it. But I would like to um, conduct an experiment where. You know, you recruit a group of people to live in a community for five years, um, a racially diverse group of people to live in a community and interact as neighbors for five years and see what happens. Interesting. I mean, you well, it, you can't do it legally. You can't make people, you can't make people move where you want them to. But it would be interesting to see how they, how they get along for five years. I don't know. I think with a little uh, financial subsidy, right? You, you could say, hey, we're looking for five volunteers of different racial backgrounds to move into this community. And um, I don't know. It, that that seems doable to me. Okay. If you guys are in, I'm in. You got to do it with me. All right. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm happy to uh, try to help you figure that out. You know, <laughs> okay. I, I think it'd be fascinating, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, some of those experiments don't go well. Like, remember all the people yep. that put into that um, the space habitat thing. What, what, what was the name of that? Um, the sphere. The, like, yeah, they had the sphere and they put all the folks in, and it just turned to pure chaos. But <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I... <laughs> um, yeah, they, they wanted to simulate like what a group. You know, you take a group of people together that all look like they're they're awesome together, and uh-huh. you put them in like a situation like Mars, right? So they're in a bubble and they can't leave and they have to work together and cooperate. And Interesting. How long do they remain in the bubble? Boy, I, I'm trying to remember the uh, the details. Well, we should actually maybe uh, try to do a show on that. <laughs> well, there, there is the NBA, NBA, which is in a bubble. So that's one, <laughs> one example of that concept, yeah. Sounds like so. a reality show. Maybe we just found how we get this funded. We just need to. <laughs> if, if you guys oh, are in, you. I'm in. <laughs> All right, Dr. Lacey, is there any way that uh, people who would like to follow you in your work in the future, where you'd like them to connect? Uh, yeah, they could follow me on Twitter um, at Karen Lacey, 
Okay. I will definitely mark that. Thank you so much for your time. Karen with a Y, right? It is. K-A-R-Y-N-L-A-C-Y with no E, Aaron. No E. That's correct. <laughs> I caught that once. I'll go back through and check everything on the <laughs> website and post all the links to some of the fun books and videos that we found and we'll link to um, your Twitter account for sure. Thank you oh, so great. much for your time today. Thank you guys for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Data-Driven Real Estate Show. You can find show notes and links to some of the resources mentioned in the show at datadrivenrealestate.com. Click that join the community and you'll be forwarded to our community where you can even ask questions for upcoming guests, ask questions of current guests. We monitor there and we'd love to engage with you. Uh, Please don't forget to like, favorite, subscribe, and share on any of your favorite platforms. It helps us out a great deal. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.